Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. During the 1960s, leaders of the American Civil Rights Movement, including Martin Luther King, were staunch supporters of Israel, often praising the Jewish homeland as a model democracy. Uh, Israel uh, must exist and has a right to exist and is one of the great outposts of democracy in the world. African-American civil rights activists also praised Israel as a model of social integration, where Jews from Europe and Jews from Arab countries, known as Mizrahim, lived in harmony. Martin Luther King was in contact with a lot of Israeli ambassadors and statesmen and government officials. And he would say that, you know, Israel, Israeli society seems like, uh, I mean, this was, you know, not very perceptible of him, but he, he, he thought that Israeli society was very much integrated uh, in terms of, you know, its Jewish population. That's Brian Roby, a fellow at the Frankel Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies and author of the book The Mizrahi Era of Rebellion, Israel's Forgotten Civil Rights Struggle, 1948 to 1966. He says that, contrary to the harmonious picture presented to American civil rights leaders, Mizrahim, or so-called Eastern Jews, were often treated as second-class citizens. Right from the start, Roby says, in 1948, when the modern state of Israel declared independence, the European Jewish, or Ashkenazi, establishment funneled Mizrahi Jewish immigrants into transit camps called Ma'abarot. And these were, you know, by definition, transitory. Um, they were supposed to live there for maybe a month or two, uh, but a lot of times uh, people would live there for years. And these were nothing more than like canvas tents, sometimes uh, tent shacks and things like that. Very, very poor housing. And these are uh, people who, who largely came from like an urban middle class or upper middle class uh, elite uh, from their countries of origin to living in a tent, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Unemployment, Roby says, was also a major issue for Mizrahi Jews. In the 50s, um, you have um, mostly civil, a lot of civil servants from Iraq and uh, North Africa coming in and they um, immigrated and expected to have the same kind of position or a high level position. Um, but they were not hired to do anything other than sometimes, you know, menial labor, uh, like plowing the fields, which they had no familiarity with. And their children would later just be unemployed, largely. Now, it's not surprising, Roby says, that American civil rights leaders were unaware of the plight of Mizrahi Jews in Israel, because outside Israel, it was mainly hidden from view. Because um, these were local protests, and so in the papers, they really wouldn't really write about it. Um, unless they were violent, and a lot of them were not violent. Um, and what you see from the, and, and, and there's also a, this issue of like, you know, uh, when they talk, when Middle Eastern Jews themselves talk about or talked about uh, these protests, they were, of course, not in Hebrew because they're immigrants. So their Hebrew, Hebrew was very limited. Uh, they used the, you know, the language that they knew, either it was Arabic, uh, sometimes French, uh, even Hebrew, uh, English sometimes, or Persian. And so they wrote these journals and I was looking, uh, I looked a lot at these journals and like how they described, you know, what was going on and what they did uh, to fight back against it. While American civil rights leaders may not have known about the struggles of Mizrahi Jews, Mizrahim closely followed and were inspired by the American civil rights movement, often adopting its tactics. There were a lot of sit-ins. There were uh, work strikes, which is, you know, common throughout the world. But uh, specifically, the type of tr strikes that they did were drawn uh, from the African-American experience. 
Similar to the plight of African Americans, Mizrahi Jews were often denied access to certain neighborhoods and housing opportunities and received substandard education. And like American civil rights protesters, Mizrahi Jews began to voice their grievances, even as early as 1949. And we started having these like major uh, sit-down strikes uh, against the government in particular. Um, and then in 1952, you also have like uh, what I call the Beersheba Rebellion, which was Indian and Pakistani Jews who led this uh, year and a half long uh, sit-down strike and hunger strike as well. Um, demanding to be returned to their country of origin. Some of them were allowed to, not everyone left. Um, and a lot of the government response during the early 50s was to just ignore it and say that, you know, in 10 years, this will be, this will be over, we'll all be integrated, and everybody will be happy. A pivotal point, Roby says, came in 1959. And this is uh, what's termed the Wadi Salib riots. So uh, Haifa, which is a city in the north, a man was shot by the police. Uh, he was drunk, but he was unarmed, and the police uh, shot him. Uh, a lot of people mistakenly thought that he was killed, but he was actually just in the hospital. And it sparked off this major riot throughout the country uh, where people you know, were burning down post offices for some reason, uh, breaking into all kinds of things. And the response by the government was to form a commission called the Etzioni Commission. And the entire point of the commission was to determine, was there discrimination in Israeli society? If so, how far does it go? And if so, how do we fix this? Despite the widespread unrest and looting, the commission concluded that discrimination was in fact not a major problem in Israel. And so discrimination against Mizrahi Jews continued throughout the 60s and on into the 1970s. Inspired by the militant African-American organization, the Black Panther Party, a group of young Moroccan Jews formed Pantharim Shchorim, which translates to Black Panthers in Hebrew. A lot of times uh, the Black Panthers would uh, go up to, Golda Meir was then the prime minister. They tease her and taunt her and things like that from, you know, outside her office. Um, and the response was a lot of times um, kind of brutal uh, repression of the protests. Uh, so police would come on horseback and, uh, you know, uh, beat some of the protesters, um, which sparked a lot of riots. The Israeli establishment was finally forced to admit that there was, in fact, a problem. It began to take action. A lot of different uh, housing policies were changed as a result because one of the main issues was that you would have a family of seven or eight living in a one-bedroom apartment and things like that. And so then uh, more housing projects were built, um, which is something similar that happened in America as well, whereas you have especially southern migrants to the north living in very cramped quarters. Um, and then by the 70s, housing projects are built. In Israel, they're called shikunim, but they're basically the same idea as that, you know, you have this entire community of people living in like one, you know, giant spot. Uh, it's a high rise building and things like that. And that came with its own problems uh, that emerged in the 80s. So then through that, you kind of see that the trajectory of, of the histories of the two peoples are, you know, kind of following similar paths. Now, you might imagine that Ashkenazi Jews in Israel, nearly all of whom had escaped from or survived the Holocaust or came from families that did, would be extra sensitive to discrimination, especially against fellow Jews. But ironically, the legacy of the Holocaust did little to sensitize European Jews to the plight of Mizrahim. 
for Mizrahim, there was this kind of uh, twofold bitterness towards uh, the kind of legacy of the Holocaust. On one hand, because it does play a role in, in kind of the historiography of Israel and that, you know, there was the Holocaust and this was an instance of Jews who didn't fight back. Now we have a state whereas we can fight back. And so this, this is how it plays uh, within Israeli society. But for Mizrahim, uh, for the large part, we're thought not to be a part of the Holocaust, uh, even though that, that's not actually the case. Of course, uh, Jews in Tunisia um, were put into labor camps uh, in the south of the country. Uh, Iraqi Jews faced a large pogrom as a result of Nazi policies. So what happened in the early 50s is that people would say, well, I fought in the war, but I'm being treated less than someone who wasn't even here and didn't fight back. By the 1990s, Roby says, the ongoing Mizrahi struggle had developed a more intellectual and self-reflective element with the formation of institutions. Particularly the Democratic Rainbow, which was named after Jesse Jackson's uh, push, Rainbow Push Coalition. And so you have a lot of groups like that. And then later on, or like currently what you have is a lot of people who are kind of looking back to their own histories of their grandparents or their parents and trying to recall that or retrieve, you know, what was kind of lost and uh, or erased in a sense. So you have uh, young Jews who are originally from Morocco starting to uh, learn Moroccan Arabic and then sing in Moroccan Arabic or write poetry about their Mizrahi, uh, Mizrahi identity or, you know, the Iraqi identity, even though, you know, they never stepped foot in Iraq um, for obvious reasons. Like the African-American struggle for equal rights and opportunities in the United States, the Mizrahi struggle in Israel continues to this day. In fact, Roby says, in some ways, tensions between Israelis of European descent and Jewish ethnic minorities, including not only Mizrahi Jews, but also Jews from Ethiopia, is more intense than ever. There was a really uh, major incident uh, last year, I believe, where uh, a young soldier was, uh, who was in uniform, Ethiopian Jewish soldier, he was harassed by the police and then beaten while he was on a bike. And that sparked protests by the Ethiopian community. And that's, you know, a large part, you know, their own, of course, you know, they have their own agency and, and voice. But a lot of that, you know, the protests had to do with the fact that they saw that, you know, this could be done. Uh, you know, we can fight back against this. Now, as Roby mentioned earlier in the episode, the Mizrahi struggle isn't very well known. Unless you're an academic specializing in Israeli history or a member of the Mizrahi community in Israel, there's a pretty good chance that you're hearing about this for the first time. But the Mizrahi struggle is worth learning about, Roby says, because it's the only way to get a really complete picture of Israeli history and society. Of course, the Arab-Israeli conflict is something that, you know, is talked about in the news. And I think everyone, uh, nearly everyone knows about that. And that's between Jews and Palestinians. But uh, that's something, you know, both at the state level and a domestic level. But within Israeli, if you actually understand, if you want to understand Israeli society, you have to understand that there are not just Jews from Europe and not just Jews from the Middle East. There are two communities, or there's several communities of Jews uh, from all over that had a very integral part in, uh, in shaping uh, the state and how the society was uh, kind of formed, both before and after 1948. And without that knowledge, what you really have is just a cursory understanding of, you know, Israel in terms of just, you know, Jews coming back to their homeland, which is how it's uh, usually phrased or framed, but uh, it's a lot more complex than that. That's it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. 
We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.